Welcome to Cybercast. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Today, we're going to hear from Ron Ross, FISMA Implementation Project Leader at NIST, about how federal agencies are handling cybersecurity risks during the COVID-19 pandemic, as thousands of employees work from home on personal devices and sometimes even on personal networks. Ron Ross is a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. His focus areas include cybersecurity, systems security engineering, and risk management. Dr. Ross leads the Federal Information Security Modernization Act, or FISMA, implementation project, which includes the development of security standards and guidelines for the federal government, contractors, and the United States critical infrastructure. Ron, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kate. Nice to be here today. First off, tell us about your work with FISMA and why it's so important to government IT. Sure. Well, the FISMA project actually started back in 2003. It's been around quite some time with the original FISMA legislation. It was the Federal Information Security Management Act of 2003. That legislation was since updated in 2014. It's now called the Federal Information Security Modernization Act, but the basic requirements have not changed all that much. That legislation is, in all laws that are passed, a fairly high level, and it charged NIST to develop the standards and guidelines that would help federal agencies implement their security programs so they could comply with the legislation. And that's really what kicked off a series of publications, starting with the special publication 853 with our security control catalog. Since now, it's been evolving into include privacy controls as well. Of course, the risk management framework and a whole host of publications that support the RMF, the risk management framework, from control selection to assessment procedures, continuous monitoring, the authorizations to operate. All of these are tools that NIST has produced to help federal agencies uh, secure their systems, protect their data, and actually execute good security programs. Can you talk about how the pandemic has affected FISMA implementation across federal agencies? Well, the pandemic really has affected everything in different ways. I think from our perspective, most of the work, in fact, a lot of the work that we do can be done from remote work sites. So we do a lot of telework normally. I think what's happened during the pandemic, obviously missed like all federal agencies, we've gone to a almost a full telework operation. And so from our perspective, I don't think it's affected our work to the degree we're still producing special publications, we're doing our public reviews, our public vetting of the documents so our customers can get early looks at our guidance and our standards and to provide feedback to us. But I do think it's had an impact on the future of cybersecurity because obviously we've seen a tremendous movement from conducting business within inside the fence line, so to speak to almost everyone working remotely. And that's put a lot of pressure on the security folks to make sure that all those folks who are working remotely, they've got the appropriate hardware, software, firmware, and systems that can be well protected no matter where they are doing their work from. So I think we're going to see longer term, you might've heard there's a term called zero trust architecture and zero trust concepts. Those kinds of architectures and concepts, I think, are going to be pursued to a much greater degree in the future because they do lend themselves to the kind of the remote workforce and every resource gets protected internally. And there's very strong access control, authorization, authentication for resources at a much smaller or much more granular level. So I think that's just some of the lessons we've learned during the pandemic. 
Overall, how well are federal agencies meeting FSMA metrics? Where are some of the weak spots in the areas you think need improvement, and what are they doing well? Well, the actual measurement of the how agencies are doing, that's the responsibility of the Office of Management and Budget. So we don't really get deep insights into the specific FISMA metrics at any one federal agency. But in general, since we work with a lot of agencies and provide help and guidance ongoing throughout the year on all of our guidelines, I think overall agencies are doing a pretty good job. Uh, it's a lot of work to try to secure a very large and complex infrastructure. There are literally trillions of lines of code and billions of devices and ubiquitous connectivity. And you can imagine this complexity can be overwhelming. But I think the agencies are using our guidance very effectively. Of course, we have two frameworks now, actually three frameworks now. We have the risk management framework, which provides that structured and disciplined approach that agencies use as a tool to help them select the right controls and implement those controls so they get adequate levels of protection. We also have the cybersecurity framework, which in 2017 became mandatory for the federal government as well. And then we have our brand new privacy framework. So with our recent update to 853 Rev5, we now have that fully integrated catalog of security and privacy control. So the agencies have a lot of really good tools and techniques and processes that they can use to help uh, secure their systems and their data and to really protect those federal missions that are critical to the United States government and also all the people we support in the private sector. So I, I don't really have any specifics on individual agencies, but overall, I think they're doing a terrific job in implementing some very complicated guidance in some cases. I'd love to dive into some of your recent reports a little more. In one of your most recent reports, Security and Privacy Controls for Information Systems and Organizations, which was released this month, you talk about security and privacy controls being more outcome-based. Can you delve into that a little more? In an ideal world, what would that look like? Sure. The original security controls that we had uh, going back to 2005, we've had an evolution. We're now in our fifth revision to that control catalog. And of course, recently, we, uh, in fact, last week, we released the revision five, the final publication of 853 which uh, has the full integration of security and privacy controls into that same consolidated catalog. But the outcome-based work that we did, every control in the catalog previously started with the two different kind of entry points. Either the information system does some X, Y, and Z capability, or the organization does some capability or X, Y, and Z activities. And so it really directed the agencies to implement controls either at the enterprise level where it's more of a management or operational activity or at the system level, which is more of a technical implementation. But we decided that it really, and this is a lot of this came from stakeholder comments and we get a lot of great feedback from our customers. They said, you know, you should focus just on the actual capability, what the control is asking for, the outcome, what you'd like to see. And organizations can figure out whether that control would actually be implemented within the system as part of the hardware, the firmware, the software, the system, or if it should be implemented more at the organizational level, such as a policy or a procedure or some kind of a control that would have a human intervention. And so we decided to take away all of those entry points for the controls. And so now the controls just have the raw capability that's required. And every agency who implements that control 
they figure out whether it's best implemented within the information system or as part of the organization in a more general sense. So this is a pretty flexible approach to privacy and security controls for government agencies, so they can pick and choose what works for them. It's an extremely flexible approach. In fact, the risk management framework and all of our controls that we've defined in 853 Rev 5, privacy and security controls, they have to have flexibility of implementation because, as you can imagine, the federal government is large. It has a lot of very diverse missions, Think everything from the Transportation Security Administration to Health and Human Services. And with that diversity across the federal landscape, we have to ensure that every federal agency has the flexibility to satisfy those requirements coming out of FISMA, the Federal Information Security Modernization Act. And also, the agencies have to comply with OMB policy, primarily Circular A130, which is the primary driver for cybersecurity and privacy within the federal government. So, you know, our job is to give the best technical guidance that we can, provide tools so agencies can have maximum flexibility of implementation with the objective of having great security solutions in the manner that best supports the, the specific agency that's doing the implementation. So that's always been our goal and our objective because you really can't do it any other way. Totally. In February, you released a report about protecting controlled unclassified information in non-federal systems and organizations like federal contractors. And then in March, federal employees started working from home. And even though they might have special VPNs and network protocols to keep information safe in a home environment, people will still use their personal devices and networks to do work. More than seven months later, given the pandemic and mass telework, what do you think is the most applicable thing from this report? Well, the report that you're talking about is actually a special publication that was published. It's still in draft. The original 800-171 publication was our original set of requirements that was published back in 2015 to protect what we call controlled unclassified information. That information, those categories of, we call it CUI, controlled unclassified information. Those were defined by NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, as part of an executive order tasking. And so that publication is targeted at organizations that are non-federal organizations who may be in receipt of controlled unclass information from the federal government. So, for example, if you're a federal agency and you have a contractor that's working on a project for you, and part of that information that is part of that project is categorized as controlled unclassified information, which is a special category of information that requires special protection by either a law or a government-wide policy or some kind of a directive or regulation, then that information needs to have the same level of protection as if it were operating within the federal boundary or the federal system, so to speak. Now, when you mentioned telework in the pandemic, for federal employees, they still are under the jurisdiction, if you will, of our federal guidelines, which would be the NIST 853 security controls. And so what that means in the case of telework, for example, an organization would potentially fully configure a laptop or some kind of a device that the employee would take from their normal workplace, and they would take that fully protected device, and they would take that home to the telework environment. And then they have all of the necessary safeguards on that device, that laptop, that would be there if that same laptop were operating within, within the federal agency. So things like establishing a virtual private network, that encrypted tunnel, so the information is protected from the remote worksite all the way back to the federal agency. 
having strong access controls, two-factor authentication. You, you've heard about our PIV cards where we have that two-factor authentication where you have to have the smart card, the PIV card, and it controls the access to the laptop. And also it helps reduce cyber attacks greatly because you've got that separate token that uh, really passwords can be weak sometimes and, and they're easily compromised, but with two-factor authentication in our smart cards, and so you have things like that that are inherently deployed on the devices for the federal employees. But the 171, in contrast, is where you have contractors that are using that same information. And the 171 and the document you mentioned in March that we published, a companion publication, 800172, that is really focused on making sure we have strong requirements when that information goes into a contractor or a non-federal organization, like a state and local government, for example, or an education institution. And so that's really what that was all about, is to have equivalent protections on both sides, whether it's in the federal side or on the private sector side. Gotcha. A related issue is with so many federal employees working from home, tiered authorization access is more important than ever to prevent employees from accidentally accessing highly classified information on a vulnerable home computer or Wi-Fi network. In this February report, you specifically talked about how federal agencies need to employ the principle of least privilege to protect information. How well are federal agencies doing when it comes to employing the principle of least privilege? And how has this principle taken on new meaning during the pandemic? Can you talk about why this is so applicable right now? Uh, least privilege and least functionality are two of our core cybersecurity concepts that go back well over 40 years. And the concept of least privilege and least functionality kind of, they're different, but they kind of go together. You, you want to try to limit, in the case of least privilege, you want to limit the number of people and the number of privileges that they have to only give a sufficient number of privileges and access to those people and with sufficient privileges to actually conduct your specific mission operations. The more people that you give access to data and the more privileges that are given, the greater the probability of a breach. It's kind of a physics problem. And so by limiting the number of people to only authorized individuals, obviously that's the kind of the foundation. And then within the group of authorized individuals, really focusing on only those individuals that absolutely have access, need access to the information. So traditionally, in the world of information security, there's two concepts. You get authorized access to with some data, and then you also have to have a need to know. And so that's the way we implement least privilege. If you don't have a need to know in certain circumstances with a project or some activity, then you shouldn't be given access to that information. And so least privilege is one of the core things that it's in our security control catalog. It's one of our main controls. And when you couple uh, least privilege with least functionality, which means you only deploy the components, that you limit the applications, the number of applications, and all of the software components, the ports, the protocols, the services, only to those that are necessary to carry out the mission. Because the more things you bring into the computing environment, adding a new smartphone, a new tablet, a new laptop, whatever those new components might be, that increases the complexity of the information system, and it increases something called attack surface. It basically gives the adversary a greater number of places to try to attack your system and the specific components that are part of that system. So when you limit that, you really reduce the adversary's attacks, the attack surface, and you limit the adversary's opportunity to do damage to your organization. 
And so that's really what least privilege and least functionality, they kind of go hand in hand to make organizations more secure. Yeah, totally. What about remote access sessions with so many federal agencies logging into their agency's VPN? What can federal agencies be doing to employ maximum VPN security with federal employees logging into all of these devices that could compromise an agency's network? I think the biggest thing that agencies can do is to go back to the fundamentals. If you're going to have people teleworking, the most foundational thing you can do is make sure whatever component devices that they're using, whether it's a laptop or whatever they're using to access that federal information system, that that device is well protected, whether it's a smartphone or whether it's a tablet or a laptop, make sure that the appropriate controls have been implemented on those particular systems and devices. And so the other thing I think agencies can do is to go back to something we just talked about, limit the number of applications. There's a term, we used to call it whitelisting, and now it's called the approved software applications control. It really limits, the organization has the ability to limit the specific applications that can be installed and that can be executed on the system. And again, if you limit that to only those applications that are mission essential, you then reduce that attack surface greatly. I think one of the things that we've seen during the pandemic, and I think we're all experiencing this, is there's a tremendous number of webinars and Zoom calls being done. And I think just from my personal experience, I've probably seen 10 different platforms that people have asked us to use during webinars. So every time you have access to a a web-based platform or something that has to be installed on your system in order to do a webinar, that again has some level of risk to it. You really need to know the specifics about what platform you're being asked to install because that software, once it's installed on your system, increases your attack surface. It potentially brings in new vulnerabilities because we absolutely have to understand what software we're installing on these systems. And more importantly, know a little bit about that software. How trustworthy is it? Has it been approved? Have we tested it? There are lots of different factors that are kind of invisible during normal times, but I think that level has increased dramatically during the pandemic because we've had to rely so much on the remote workforce now. It's a tough problem, but I think we have the tools to address it. I hope every agency is doing that. With so many federal employees working from home, it seems like the attack service for government agencies has expanded and grown. Other than limiting access, what are some of the best things government agencies can do right now to control that attack service? Yeah, this is where we were talking about earlier, um, the concept of zero trust architecture and zero trust concepts. NIST just published not too long ago, uh, one of my colleagues, Scott Rose, a special publication, I think the number is 800-207. It's a great publication. It talks about these concepts of zero trust. And basically what that means is that when you have normally, when you come into an organization over the network, once you do your authentication, your access control and your authentication, your login procedures, whether it's hopefully using two-factor authentication VPNs, but once you're inside the network, in many cases, you have access to almost everything because you've gone through that first checkpoint. In the concept of zero trust architectures, they take a much more granular approach and almost every resource within that agency that could be accessible by an employee is treated as an independent resource. And you have to go through a much more granular authentication and access control regime for navigating across those different resources within the organization. So that's not something you can just snap your fingers and have automatically be implemented. It takes some architectural design, uh, re-engineering decisions, but 
I think organizations can start to look more at those zero trust architectures and maybe take a longer term approach now and say, look, we're going to go back and try to reconfigure, re-engineer our enterprise to implement more of those zero trust concepts, because it does bode very well for the kind of things we're seeing during the pandemic, where you have a lot of people coming in from external places now, and they're accessing a lot of things within that federal boundary. But until you actually have those kinds of zero trust architectures in place, there's a lot of things you can do that just enforce the basic, I call it the blocking and tackling, making sure that people use two-factor authentication when they're coming in and they're accessing federal resources, federal information systems, making sure those VPNs are solid, they're strong, and they're effectively implemented, correctly implemented within the organization. So there's lots of fundamentals that really haven't changed during the pandemic. And I think just making sure that people are doing those fundamentals, but we're doing it on a much bigger scale now. So that is always going to be a challenge, but we have everything we need to actually be effective in that regard. Yeah. Can you talk about what sorts of external systems agencies should watch out for with employees working from home and logging into connecting to different external systems like a home printer? You know, there's danger, potential danger in almost all these devices because I like to use the term, it's the black box. And and I use that as a metaphor. And the black box could be your laptop, it could be your smartphone, it could be your tablet, your printer. And the common denominator in all of these things is they're all driven by computers that have firmware and software, no matter what you're talking, even printers, the smart printers and all these devices are smart devices, even IoT devices now, the computer's the common denominator. So you really don't know what you don't know. And so whenever you're going in and installing a new piece of software, for example, or clicking on a web link or going to a website, there's a lot of things that happen below the, I call it below the waterline that customers, users can't see. And it's really very dangerous to do things like that without knowing a little bit about the website or, you know, what application you're trying to install. Now, sometimes it's impossible to know everything because software is very complicated. But in general, and we try to practice this at NIST, is there's a lot of times when you'll get an email, for example, and somebody will say, hey, there's an attachment that we'd like you to open up, or here's a web link that you should click on to do X, Y, or Z. Now, one of the things I think you have to be able to do is think about before you do that and be very, very careful. For example, if I get an email with an attachment, someone asked me to open I will actually call them or send them an email message, not responding to this email, but I would go back and do an out-of-band email to that individual or pick up the phone and call them and say, did you just send me an attachment or a web link that you'd like me to click on? And that's kind of my, my second level of due diligence that I would try to do routinely. And we do this even for people within NIST. If I get an email from someone within NIST, because the phishing attacks now are getting so sophisticated that you could get an email from someone that looks like, you know, a buddy of yours who works down the hall or one of your management chain. And those phishing attacks, that could be someone spoofing. And, and you have to be really careful in that regard. So I think those are the kinds of things that you can do personally, just be more conservative on how many things you install, software applications, try to minimize that going back to the concept of least functionality we talked about earlier and doing some of those things. But there's a lot of temptation out there. We get pretty sloppy sometimes and we just think that, hey, if I don't see it, it's not going to be harmful. Well, the reality is most of the bad stuff's happening below that waterline, which you can't see. So not an easy problem, but we do the best we can. What is your top advice for federal employees working from home who want to make sure they're abiding by best cybersecurity practices 
and also for federal agencies who are trying to manage all of these employees working from home and making sure their networks are secure. You know, I would say cybersecurity is always a team sport. And so I think all of us have an obligation that this doesn't just fall on the CIO or the CISO or even the head of the agency or the head of your division or your organization. I think we've got to be educated consumers and good stewards and work with our CISO and our CIOs and help them do their job. So just making sure that if you get issued a laptop, for example, or some smart device that you're going to be using from home, just ask the question from a consumer's perspective, kind of double check, say, hey, do I have the appropriate security controls that we would normally have employed when I'm working in the office? Do I have those same safeguards on the current device that you're giving me to work from home? You know, that's usually coming from the CISO or the organization when they pre-configure. But if you kind of double check that and make sure that you're doing your part to kind of make sure those things are there on your behalf, because if something happens to your organization and you're not doing your part to help make sure that all these things are coming together, then all of us are going to suffer in the long term. So I think, you know, just being a, an educated consumer, understanding what safeguards have been employed on your devices when you're working, when you're teleworking, that's a really, a really big deal. Because if you don't understand that you're supposed to be using two-factor authentication or you're supposed to be using a VPN or what those things actually mean, I think that then you kind of have your head in the sand and you'll end up doing things sometimes that are not best practices or things that are a little sloppy. And we all have to be very diligent now and be kind of very disciplined to ask the right questions and not install that piece of software. Don't go to that website because every time you do that, it's that one time when you let your guard down where that malicious code could then be installed on your system, your laptop, your device, and that could potentially infect uh, large parts of your organization. And ultimately, we talk about confidentiality, integrity, and availability. All of those security objectives with what malicious code can do today, it can bring down your capability. It can cause a massive exfiltration event where they're stealing information from your system, whether it's uh, federal information or intellectual property if you're in the private sector sector. All of these things end up being huge, huge security risks that we all have to pay attention to today. Great. Well, Ron, I don't have any more questions for you right now, but I'd love to hear any final comments from you about security and privacy controls, especially during the pandemic, and what federal agencies are facing in terms of cybersecurity challenges because of the pandemic. Yeah, I would just say that you know, security and privacy, when we work at NIST, this is kind of what we do. It's, it's what our profession is. But in general, if you kind of think about where society is going and all of this wonderful technology we, we really use routinely today, whether it's our smartphones or our tablets or whatever the technology is, the IoT space now with all those new devices, it's really an incredible capability. The technology is really empowering society. We're being more productive. We're doing things we never imagined. But while all that innovation is going on and all these wonderful things are happening, we have to think about the societal implications about using all this technology when some of it may not be as trustworthy as we need it to be. And that really talks to the heart of security and privacy now stands shoulder to shoulder with security because the fact that we're using all these devices, our personal privacy, our personally identifiable information, all the individual privacy if you don't have a solid foundation of security controls and you don't have the appropriate privacy controls, then you're really exposing a lot of your life to potentially really bad people. And it's just, it's something that we're going to have to become more comfortable with over time. 
And as we continue to work on the newer security and privacy controls, our intent here is to try to continue to have this innovation, but yet have that new technology protected to the degree that customers can use it safely and effectively to do all the great things that we'd like it to do and still maintain the same type of security we had when we were largely a paper-based world. And that's a challenge that we're going to continue to face. And I think we're making great, great progress, but there's still a lot of work to do. But I'm very optimistic for the future. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ron. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And thank you so much for coming on Cybercast. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate your time. Managing VPN security, a zero-trust mindset, and thousands of employees working remotely on different devices and networks is a huge cybersecurity challenge. Federal agencies have had to adapt quickly to the new telework environment of 2020, but there's no shortage of advice, news, and thought leadership from federal IT leaders to help agencies make the most of their cybersecurity strategies. To hear more about what's happening in the constantly evolving world of federal cybersecurity, subscribe to Cybercast and stay up to date on the latest cyber trends and insight. I'm your host, Kate Macri, and thank you for listening. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.